There is a new and better way to get audiobooks. Check out Slate's new audiobook store at slate.com slash audiobooks. This store is going to change how you buy audiobooks. You'll find deep savings on all the latest bestsellers, and there are no subscription fees. Plus, when you buy from Slate, your book gets delivered to your preferred podcast app, the same place you're hearing this show. Unlike other stores, there's no standalone app to download. For somebody like me, that's amazing. My podcast app is where I do all my listening. To have my books also consolidated there would be a huge boon. So I'm really looking forward to using this Slate store. And one book you might want to check out, and a book that I'm certainly going to check out at the Slate audiobook store, is Empire Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. Patrick has been a GapFest guest in the past. He's, of course, the New Yorker journalist who wrote so brilliantly about the conflict in in Ireland and Northern Ireland. And Empire Pain is his huge, massive bestseller about the Sackler family and about how the Sackler family and their company, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, introduced opiates to American life and how we ended up with a tragic national catastrophe as a result of the the addiction and suffering that came out of that. The book is brilliant. It's wonderfully reported. It's vivid. I can't imagine how good it would be as an audiobook. So find it and other titles at slate.com slash audiobooks. And to save 20% off your first order, use promo code GABFEST. And remember that every book purchase helps Slate continue making the distinctive independent journalism that you depend on. So visit the store at slate.com slash audiobooks and use promo code GABFEST. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political GABFEST for November 4th, 2021, the red all over edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in my home in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, I liked that title because it went back to a joke from when we were all like three years old. It was great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, then he is not red all over. He's red, white, and blue all over. John Dickerson of CBS this Sunday morning. Hello, John from New York. How are you? Hello from New York. I'm fine. A little chilly up here in my room hmm. in New York, I mean. In your garret. In your garret. Your tubercular garret. This week... We will talk about the disaster for the Democrats in the off-off-year election. What can they do to fend off catastrophe in 2022 and 2024? And what will Republicans do to capitalize on the results in Virginia and elsewhere? We will be joined by New York Times columnist Ross Douthat to talk about that. Then, Supreme Court bonanza. Two topics. First, we will talk about the Texas abortion law, the, the arguments over the Texas abortion law at the Supreme Court this week week and other abortion cases that are coming up. Then we'll talk about the huge gun rights case that the Supreme Court heard arguments in also this week, the case that could make it legal to carry a gun a lot of places, almost any time, almost anywhere, a question of law that is really fascinating. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Tuesday was by almost any measure a disaster for Democrats nationally, notably Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin. What a weird name to say. Glenn Youngkin. Uh, beat Terry McAuliffe in the Says Virginia David governor's Plotz. race. Plots. 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 Uh, I think Phil- his name looks really good in type. It's just a little hard to say. Yes. Youngkin. Youngkin. Uh, and Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, just barely won re-election in that state. The enthusiasm of Democratic voters is way down. Republicans are mobilized, and unless Democrats perform some kind of miracle, they are headed for a 2022 wipeout. We are joined by Ross Douthat, the New York Times columnist and author, incidentally, Slate Plus members, of a brilliant new book about his struggle with Lyme disease, The Deep Places, which we're going to talk about on our Slate Plus segment shortly. So stick around for that, because it's a great book, and Ross is so interesting about that, as he will be interesting about this. So... Ross, this is the first election since 2016, arguably, that was not about Donald Trump, and it showed, yes? Yes. I mean, it was, there was something very strange about the Virginia election, where 
you know, the strangeness was in certain ways how normal it was if you had gone back in time 10 years and said, in the 2021, you know, Virginia gubernatorial race, a, you know, a fresh-faced businessman uh, with four kids named Glenn Youngkin will narrowly defeat Terry McAuliffe for the governorship of Virginia, people would say that's just the kind of thing that happens in Virginia politics all the time. That sounds completely normal. Clearly, nothing interesting has happened <laughs> in the last, you know, five to seven years. So obviously, the issue set that affected this election was not normal in any sense. This was, you know, continued to be a COVID-shadowed election. It's an election shadowed by debates over race and education that weren't, you know, weren't on major national radar five or 10 years ago. Five or 10 minutes ago. But there was still something really super normal and weirdly normal about um, just the the Youngkin-McAuliffe contrast and the way the race actually turned out. So was it normal? Like, so the, the macro explanation, as I've been schooled to talk about this, where you have an off-year election, the president is unpopular, the Democrats lose. But then you have COVID, which is super unnormal, and its effect on education in Virginia. And then you have the fighting over, you know, race in the schools, as you discussed. And you have Trump, like, hovering in the background, so even though Youngkin seemed like such a normie candidate for Republicans to run, I wonder if this year, I don't know, John, to help me out, am I like, can we think of these more specific factors as important or do we just not know yet? If in 12 of the last 13 gubernatorial races, the out party won, that is super normal. If when you're president of a party and you have a low approval rating and that's bad for candidates of your party, that's normal. COVID, which is particular to right now, though, contributes to that general rule. So those are all extremely normal. What was particular is Youngkin benefited from the fact he's an outsider, which meant he didn't have to do any of the compulsory routines of Trump fealty in his previous life to rise the way other kind of polls would have to. So he was a pretty clean slate candidate. Critical race theory played a key role in this sense. It it energized the Trump voter without Youngkin needing to call Donald Trump into the state so he could keep that distance. I mean, imagine if... Critical race theory doesn't exist. So you have to invite Donald Trump to the state to get a rally going to get all those Trump voters out to vote for Youngkin. They get them all riled up. But then when Donald Trump gives the rally, he reminds all the suburban Republican voters, many of them women, who voted for Biden, why they wanted to vote for Biden. And to get to the big the big star Donald Trump to visit, Youngkin has to say nice things about him, which um, adheres Youngkin to Trump, who is unpopular. As exit polls showed, Trump is way underwater uh, with voters, but Youngkin was um, much more popular. Critical race theory helped Youngkin apportion the electorate that way, and it's one of the ways that the idiosyncrasies of this race took place. You're going to hear a lot about critical race theory and other races in 2022. Finally, critical race theory became something fuzzy. It came to mean everything, seeing everything through the racial prism, which meant Youngkin could say, we should teach about America's awful past, but students shouldn't be taught to see every interaction through the prism of race. And that sounds okay to a broader audience, to those Republicans outside the Trump core who are, as Emily said, angry at the Virginia school system because COVID, the COVID teaching period was such a mess in Virginia. So, Ross, you've written about the critical race issues and how they played in Virginia. I think it's pretty clear that when we go back and look at this, there's going to be a swing of parents towards Republicans or away from Biden I would, my own gut, which is nothing to do with truth, is that it is much more the second set of factors that John was talking about, which is that the schools have been a, a, a shit show for the last year. And a lot of it can be blamed on Democratic officials who lead school districts, on teacher teachers and school unions, all of which are identified with the left and all of which, particularly in Northern Virginia, which has had a particularly bad situation uh, and has a ton of voters who who could, who traditionally vote Democratic, who maybe didn't turn out as enthusiastically, that, that that was a much bigger force in animating parents than maybe the race stuff. So, I mean, first of all, it is just generally a little hard to pinpoint these things, right? I mean, you had, as I think you mentioned in the opening, you had a big swing in New Jersey, um, which, you know, sort of matched the swing in Virginia, 
there was not a, an equivalent to the debate over curricula in Loudoun County in New Jersey, to the best of my knowledge. So if you look at that, you say, yeah, this is a sort of a uniform swing against the Democrats that isn't about local issues at all. Although... The schools were closed in New Jersey as well as Virginia. Well, that's right? well, right. And then so there's this to me, I feel like there's this sense in which everyone, whether whether or not you sort of have brought it to a sharp point um, with something like what the debates that went on in Loudoun County, everyone in sort of blue to purple America has lived for the last year and a half with one, a lot of school closures, um, but two, also a period of real ideological ferment that has been sharpest in the most elite sectors. It's been sharpest, like, you know, in in the culture of like elite museums and poetry associations um, and famous American newspapers and so on, right? But it's also clearly had an impact on schools and education debates. I, I think you can just sort of assume that both of those are background forces for whatever kind of sudden alienation you see among suburban voters who voted for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. I, I don't think you have to sort of say, okay, we can find the one, you know, the one memo or the one textbook in in one particular school that explains this whole debate. Like this has just been the background of um, suburban politics for the last for the last year or so. And I do think there's a little bit of I, I hate the term gaslighting, so I'm gonna gesture at it, <laughs> but not use it. But in you know, the 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 argument from the left where people say, I mean, which in the end was Terry McAuliffe's argument, right? Which is that critical race theory is not being taught in Virginia schools and anyone who thinks so is doing a racist dog whistle. Now look, critical race theory is an academic term that the activist Chris Rufo has used to sort of try and capture what we can think of as like the great awakening writ large. And it's fine to say, you know, that's a bad term or it's an activist's term that's, you know, trying to do jujitsu against liberals, whatever. But the great awakening, the phenomenon of a attempt at a transformed approach to talking about race, talking about gender, talking about American history, all that is totally real. And it would be weird if it wasn't an issue in elections, again, regardless of sort of specific school policies or texts. Yeah, I mean, one thing I wonder about is that when Democrats say the um, controversy over critical race theory is false because it's not being taught, there's often like a lot of scolding and then no second sentence or paragraph of, well, what actually is the set of concerns here? And I think the sort of, to me, evil genius of labeling the Great Awakening, as you call it, critical race theory, is that it mushes together everything from this very academic theory, which I learned about in law school is super interesting and important in that context, with teaching about slavery or like a book about Ruby Bridges and the civil rights era. And it's really hard to know what parents are objecting to. And sometimes in the news coverage, when I'm looking for those specifics, I can barely find it. I can't even really figure out what the crux of the dispute is. I was interested in this tweet the other day from Jay Kang, preview, who will also be guesting on our show soon. And he was saying there's a weird disconnect between the way people on here, meaning on liberal Twitter, I think, talk about some of the DEI and anti-racist curriculum stuff. Mostly, they ignore the actual content to speak more broadly about CRT panic, which I agree is terrible. And then the end of the disconnect is the disconnect between the way folks are talking about DEI and anti-racist curriculum and what they actually think about that curriculum. And I think that's right. Democrats haven't really addressed the curricula that they might disagree with because it seems like you're sort of playing footsie with the and, Chris Russo's of the yeah. world who are trying to just like tar everything. But And one thing I wonder about the coverage is whether I'm only hearing about the concerns of white parents, whether there is more widespread uncertainty about the way race and history are being taught. Um, so that's another sort of problem in this is whether it seems to put the concerns of white parents at the center of these controversies, but then doesn't actually explore what the larger dynamic, the larger multiracial dynamic is. A problem for Democrats is that trying to adjudicate all those subtleties in the context of an election is impossible. Mm -hmm. It's impossible because it's hard, even in laboratory conditions, to come to a settled 
definition, but it's harder when you are in a political context where your opponents and their media arm misrepresent everything you say. And B, it's hard because the, or it's tough for Democrats because the extended debate that's required to get all these things in line is is always taking place on Republican turf. It's not good for Democrats to get tied down all day on the other team's turf. And when you're talking about critical race theory, even if you're reaching metaphysical precision on it, you're always participating on Republican turf and you're ginning up Republican voters. And in this case, Democratic voters turned out more in this 21 than they did in 2017. It's just that even more Republicans turned out for their well, side. Well, but but the but the suburbs, so the pattern of prior elections had been the suburbs were moving to the Democrats and rural areas were moving to to the Republicans. And in this election, every area moved to the Republicans, which means it wasn't just base turnout. There clearly was some persuasion going on. And sure. and there, I think, a, a savvy Democratic politician in the style of politicians like Bill Clinton once upon a time would be able to pick out something in the, you know, world of Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi that he or she disagrees with and say, I'm in favor of teaching about segregation and slavery and assigning Toni Morrison, but I don't agree with, you know, this Robin DiAngelo definition of whiteness, right? And I I think there's an, I think, I mean, I, I think that's better than the you know, nothing's going on here, don't believe your lying eyes approach that McAuliffe took. Well, I mean, obviously McAuliffe's approach was the wrong approach. I mean, McAuliffe played a hand, a bad hand badly. But what I'm saying is when you have limited time and attention in a campaign, the more time and attention Democrats spend on trying to adjudicate this is time they're not spending and voters are not hearing about the whole host of other larger issues they've been talking about so much in Congress that they say are so important to people in their daily lives. I should also say that part of this, the swing that took place in suburban districts happened, yes, because of the broader educational issue, but also because they were Republicans, voter, voters who were anxious just to come home. They'd gone away with Trump. They're coming home now. All Youngkin had to say is, I'm not tied up with the guy who supported the insurrection makes and makes fun of those with handicaps or women or minorities. I mean, that's a pretty low bar to get the voters to come back. How people talk about these issues is what's going to is how it's going to play out in 2022. And the Democrats yep. who spend their time trying to talk about the finer points of critical race theory have to be able to talk about even more loudly and concertedly about whatever legislation it is that but passes in Washington, if anything does pass, because if they can't do that, they're doomed. I don't know, John. I feel like people need to hear something, some answer on the front that is bothering them about education and that Democrats have to figure out what that is and come up with some message. I mean, I think Ross is taking a pretty good stab at it. They can thank well, you for that, Ross. Is the, is the front that's bothering them we don't is know. Is it the race or is it that the schools have been a mess? Or is it I mean, I think it's I think it's both. I think these two things just again, just drawing from this is, you know, not polling data, but like personal <laughs> conversations. Um, I live in blue America. I, I sort of have some sense of this. Like there's a combination of yeah, sort of disillusionment with public schools that you trusted because they were closed for so long, combined with, you know, having school on Zoom gives parents more access to what's going on with their kids than they sometimes have. And they had more access at a moment when, you know, there really was a lot of sort of transformation in how teachers were being trained to talk about race and, and history. You know, the pandemic summer of, of 2020 was a summer of the pandemic and also the summer of the awakening. And th those things are, I, I don't think you can perfectly disentangle those things. I guess as a, as a parent of a public school student in blue America, the predominant experience for me has nothing to do with the curricular experience. It is like, my God, could they think at least a little bit about what the what the effect is on the lives of of parents and families when you don't make every effort to get kids back to school. But uh, admittedly, sa sample size of one and not useful. The combination of mixing those two things was certainly the case in Virginia. And I'm not saying Democrats can't say anything. I'm just saying that searching for the perfect answer to slay the problem, I'm not sure that it's possible in the electoral context in a way that will be successful and that and that it all comes at a cost of time and attention. Well. Let, then let's turn to a, to where the, the territory, John, presumably where you think Democrats ought to be fighting, which is around legislation. And if you if you are the head of the DCCC right now, is are you hair on fire to 
we have to pass all these bills. We have to pass the infrastructure bill. We have to pass Build Back Better. We have to do it now. Or we have to slow down. The public doesn't like what we're offering. Or does it not even matter? Because it really, the constituency isn't the Democrats writ large. It's like a few people in the progressive House Progressive Caucus and two Democratic senators, Manchin and Cinema, And those are the only votes that matter anyway. So what the Democrats ought to do doesn't, doesn't really affect the, what they will do because the, what they will do is guided by these two small groups. Well, it depends on the message. You, the message of Virginia may not be critical race theory. It may be that in an off-year election, the party in power just gets pounded, uh, which would be bad for Democrats in 2022. If you believe that thermostatic voting takes place and that there's a reaction in the electorate to the party in power, then Democrats are in trouble because they're the party in power, and there's not a whole lot they can do about that. How, however, you got to do something, and it's all they've got. And it's better to talk about something, stuff you've passed, than obviously it is, and it's better to talk about nothing. So they've got to pass something and find a way, as I said last week, to still the party's primary instinct, which is to infight. Here's, Can here's, somebody define thermostatic voting for me? Sorry, I, I keep forgetting what it, it means. It means that people, if you look at like polls on immigration, when a Republican is in power or a Trumpian Republican, people suddenly become much more pro-immigration. And then as soon as a, you know, a liberal Democrat who wants to open the borders is in power, people become more anti-immigration. So there's some swing. A, a liberal president produces swings to the right. A conservative president produces swings to the left. Um, Thank you. But my question that I think Democrats, I, I don't have a definite answer to this, right, is that if, you know, re- Democratic fortunes are tied to Joe Biden's approval rating. Joe Biden's approval rating was fine until the summer. And then it entered, you know, a serious fall from which it hasn't recovered. And this happened around the time of the pullout from Afghanistan, which I supported for the record. It happened around the time the the Delta wave and the reimposition of some CDC rules happened around the time that inflation seemed to start to bite and supply chain issues. It also happened around the time that there was more legislative gridlock. But something changed, something really shifted a few months ago that made the Democratic position worse. And I'm not 100% sure what it was, but figuring out what it was probably would help the Democrats in figuring out what they should actually be doing. Like maybe there's a case that Biden should be, you know, that Biden was popular as a sort of bipartisan normalcy figure and they should have just passed the infrastructure bill and sold bipartisanship, right? That's an argument, but I'm just not sure. But how would that have manifested itself in Virginia? So let's say infrastructure passes. What voters are who voters who are animated by critical race theory in the basket of issues that you've mentioned, how many of those are are not still animated by those basket of issues? In other words, they suddenly don't turn out because infrastructure is passed. And what Democratic voters, who who turned out more in 2021 than in 2017, what additional number of Democratic voters would have turned out if infrastructure had passed? I mean, maybe it changes the sort of narrative of doom, glum, and failure. I don't know if it changes it enough. I mean, I think Ross outlined all these different factors. They all went south at once. And so it's hard to, like, figure out what one changing one of those signals would have meant. But it does seem like Democrats have had just, like, a rotten hand, part of which they dealt themselves, I would argue, especially on COVID. And but it's also like it's we've talked about this before. It's just there was a there was a euphoric adrenaline driven period of getting Trump out, getting Biden in. Biden gets a glide off of that for a little while. And then people just don't. They go back to normal, which is they go back to not wanting to think about politics all the time, worrying about the specific issues that affect their own life and not being animated by this kind of galvanizing aspect. And then Republicans go back to being galvanized in opposition. And so it's, of course, the, these things are going to, like, to me, like, whatever the honeymoon, honeymoon period is real. Honey, You do get a honeymoon period as a president. Biden got his honeymoon period. Then it was gone because the country is fucked. People are angry. Republicans are pissed. Democrats are exhausted. Yeah, but Republicans also own normalcy and recovery from COVID right now. And the Democrats own no, 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 cautious, 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 maybe we'll have masks on forever. Yeah, I mean, there was a sense that things, I mean, I, a lot of people expected this sort of Biden boom, right, that there would be this sort of economic snapback. And instead, the economy is just sort of weird, right? Like people, endless job openings, people aren't taking the job openings, supply chain issues, people have disposable income, but that's driving inflation. It's, I mean, it's a very weird economy. 
but it's not sort of the, you know, roaring 20s narrative that seemed plausible nine months ago. I think it's totally possible that there are structure and cr- structures and currents in politics that the tinkering of any one party, in this case, Democrats, can solve. I mean, as Ross mentioned, you have the Delta variant, you have supply chain issues that have caused inflation pressures that have surprised economists across the ideological spectrum. You have the power of thermostatic voting that we talked about, um, and that which seems rather strong. Of course, Democrats have to do something. They can't just sit mute. But it may not be enough to fight back against forces that are that large. And that's why Democrats may be in a pickle. In addition to the fact that uh, what's happening right now is what happens after these elections in election moments is that there's no one solution that presents itself. So Democrats are going to spend several weeks fighting over what the solution is, fighting over even what the terms mean. So even finding a solution is is really impossible. And the fight to find one will be a, a time suck and cause hurt feelings. So it may be that the structures of politics are bigger than they than the ability of a party to solve them in the next year before the election. Slate Plus members, you're going to get to hear even more of Ross in a minute, because as I mentioned, we're going to talk about his new memoir, The Deep Places, his memoir of Lyme disease. It's a fantastic book. We're going to get really into some deep, dark places with Ross about it in our Slate Plus conversation. So join if you're not already a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. It's only a dollar for the first month. You get benefits like no ads on any Slate podcast bonus episodes of shows like slow burn slow burn has a new season you get a bonus episode of that and of course the bonus segments that we do so please become a member today Uh, we have a lot of new members who've joined recently and we're excited to bring you this conversation with ross slate.com slash gabfest plus this episode is brought to you by fx's the veil starring elizabeth moss fx's the veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Emily Bazelon, explain what happened in the arguments over the Texas abortion ban case at the Supreme Court this week. So this is a case that's really important and also completely mired in sort of procedural preliminary questions, which makes it... Uh, gnarly and boring. What what happened this week was that the Supreme Court agreed to consider whether it is possible for abortion providers and the Department of Justice to bring a lawsuit in federal court to block SB 8, which is, of course, this Texas law we've talked about before, which created basically like private bounty hunter enforcement of a law that unconstitutionally nearly bans abortion after six weeks. And I say unconstitutionally based on Roe versus Wade and the current state of constitutional law. So in some ways, this case is kind of a gimme. And what I mean by that is that the conservatives refuse to block the law in September. And so abortion has precipitously dropped in Texas. I think it's below 50% of its normal rate. And if the a majority of the justices decide that this lawsuit can go forward, then that will seem like a kind of reasonable, even moderate position in light of this landscape and also the pending Supreme Court case that will be argued in early December that's about Mississippi's near ban on abortion after 15 weeks. It's the Mississippi case that at this point 
really reaches the merits of whether Roe versus Wade should be good law. And the Texas case is just about this like weird bounty hunter enforcement. So it seemed like there could very well be a majority of justices who don't want to allow this like really weird bananas way of handing over enforcement to private bounty hunters and then saying, oh, guess what? Now there's no one to sue. Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh in particular, seemed taken with a brief from some law enforcement groups pointing out that there's a copycat aspect of this law, which I think we have also talked about on the show, which is that you could imagine a blue state creating private enforcement for a handgun ban and just authorize deputize all the citizens to sue each other if they think someone has a handgun illegally. Kavanaugh did not seem to think that is a good idea. In fact, it is not a good idea. This whole uh, method just seems like it becomes this tool of using the courts to mess with people. So the big question, though, is that even if there's a majority to allow the lawsuit to go forward, do they block the Texas law now? Or do they continue in this posture where there's this very difficult circumstance for getting an abortion in Texas, and they create those facts on the ground. And then by the time the Texas lawsuit actually plays out, they've ruled in Mississippi, and they've undermined or gutted Roe, and the whole thing is sort of moot. And I kind of imagine it's the second option that's the more likely, though we will see. Were they asked, Emily, in this case by the the uh, abortion rights litigants, were they asked to enjoin the law to stop the law's enforcement? Yes. And there is one side. So it's not merely to send it back to some other court. Yes, they're being asked also. And they know how to, like, this is called an administrative stay. This is, like, routine in litigation that um, challenges laws as unconstitutional in the domain of abortion as elsewhere. You just say, like, okay, we freeze the, well, to freeze the status quo at this point would mean something different. But we don't allow this law to go into effect until we decide whether it's constitutional. When could they uh, make that determination? Any minute, right? I mean, today, <laughs> they could issue an order at any moment. I, the one thing I will say that indicates that maybe they plan to act quickly is that they granted, they set oral argument only 10 days after they agreed to hear this case. And so that suggests some sense of expedition. I didn't realize, Emily, when you said that abortion had dropped 50% in Texas, I would have thought it had dropped 95% in Texas. In yeah. a way, that the fact that it's only dropped 50% is an, is... I don't think that's great news for the abortion rights litigants. Oh, because I think no. uh, why I think, it has to be like completely dire and have zero yeah, abortions. Yeah, it's not going to feel as dire to if you're Justice Roberts sitting in a sitting in your gilded cage. It's going to be like, well, you know, women who women who have their have paid attention are able to seek a legal abortion at this early stage, and you know, those who don't are are that's their problem. I don't think so, because I think the conservatives who oppose abortion, like, oppose it entirely. And so you could also argue, like, it's bad news for the right that people have been able to be so fast to figure out that they're pregnant that they can actually still get in under the six-week window. But I don't know. Whatever. We'll see. I mean, it's thousands of people. Emily, distinct from what happens in Mississippi, is it your view? Let's imagine there's a Supreme, the Supreme Court comes in with a stay. Is it irrevocable as what happened in result in Texas as a result of this law? And then I'll ask the question I asked last time, which is, was the razzle-dazzle way in which um, they created this law, um, have they, which was to create a, a way for opponents to get around the courts by allowing anyone to make a claim, would, have they hurt themselves? Have they been too hever, clever by half? I mean, it is certainly irrevocable for women who are carrying pregnancies that they didn't intend to carry. Obviously, I'm not trying to be like uh, in any way criticize you for asking the question. Just making that point. I don't think it's irrevocable for the clinics. I think the clinics could figure out how to reopen. I mean, it is very hard on people's bottom line to not be able to operate for months and months and people who rely on clinics for jobs, et cetera. And I I also bring that up, like that's a serious issue if you're going to have abortions provided in state. And that's what Texas requires because they have a ban on telemedicine abortions, um, which could presumably happen from out of state. If you're going to have that kind of rule, then if you make it impossible for clinics to stay in business or really hard or just inordinately expensive and you throw people's lives into chaos because they don't have their jobs, like that's a big thing to consider. I don't think, though, that it's irrevocable. I don't 
I don't know about the clever by half. I mean, I do think that it's unlikely that the court is going to say this kind of private enforcement scheme is tenable. Like, it's just, it's so out there and so problematic for people on both the right and the left. I think that's what Justice Kavanaugh was getting at. So, sure. But if I think the thing about SB 8 and the way the court has handled it so far is it's all about this interim stage of creating different facts on the ground while the Mississippi case is pending. And I actually think that the court has sort of gotten away with this. I mean, maybe I'm being um, too cynical. I'm not sure. But, you know, there weren't like people did not pour into the streets when this Texas law went into right, effect. It right. did not cause like a huge political fallout for the court. And I mean, this is what I was alluding to earlier. I think that there's a way in which the Mississippi and the Texas cases kind of play off each other. Maybe this is like thermostatic Supreme Court reasoning now that I understand what thermostatic means. God, it's every it's every segment <laughs> going to be thermostatic. I'm probably just using thought. that term in the wrong way, but I'm thinking like, okay, so now if one decision seems like it's less um, extremely anti-abortion than the other one, then that makes the court seem like they're sort of balancing interests, even if that is completely untrue from any kind of like objective standpoint. And I mean, I wrote a piece last week about Amy Coney Barrett, who I think is proving to be deeply conservative and also a tactician. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. Like that's what justices do. They try to get their big agendas through over time. I do think that some of the uses of the shadow docket, in particular, this Texas case have just been egregious in terms of breaches of the court's own practices. But I do really wonder if there's a way in which SB8 is helping the conservative justices achieve their ends. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's been this kind of secret fantasy on the left, which is, oh, we're going to lose Roe, we're going to lose it, and there will be this dramatic political swing to the left, and the left will care as much about the court as the right, and it will be you know, everything will rise in our favor and it will be a huge political boon, even though it will be a tragedy. I just don't think that's going to turn out to be true. It's going to be nibbled away. It'll be 15 weeks and then there'll be it's 12 week one and there'll be an eight week one. And eventually abortion will disappear in about half the country effectively. And, or it'll just be done sub rosa with the legal internet uh, medical abortions. And, but there will never be the, the kind of backlash, as you said, Emily, because it won't happen in one sweeping moment, which appears to overturn a, a kind of a to overturn some grand principle. It will happen in little bits over, and bobs over time. I mean, that is the smart play. And also, if you look at Virginia, I think this is true, which is that you can have a backlash uh, and that backlash can be good for turning out Democratic voters. Uh, Terry McAuliffe ran on abortion at the end of his campaign, but that backlash happens in a context. And if the backlash is happening in a context where the other party is also very, very energized, and there are all these structural forces of politics energizing the other party, it, your backlash that you're talking about on abortion may increase your turnout as Democrats, but not sufficiently so to overcome the increased turnout happening in the other political party. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. So it is a huge week at the Supreme Court generally, Emily, not just because of the SB8 case, but also the gun rights case. So again, give us a give us a Bazelon special, a Bazelon, a Bazelon distillation about the fascinating and quite consequential New York gun licensing case that the court heard this week. This case is a New York regulation that makes it quite difficult to carry a gun outside of your house. You have to basically have like a special reason that you say you need to defend yourself. And New York has been very restrictive in how it actually issues licenses, I think. Although that came up as a kind of empirical question at oral argument that made me wonder if maybe that's like less clear than I thought. 
And what's at issue here is that, you know, for now, I think 12 years, 13 years, we've had on the books the idea that the Second Amendment includes an individual right to bear arms. This is courtesy of um, a case called Heller. The majority opinion is by Justice Scalia. It was a huge deal because we'd never had a Supreme Court holding of any kind like that in the nation's history before Heller. But Heller had this really important caveat in it where it said nothing in this opinion should be taken to read that lots of ordinary gun regulations are unconstitutional, like keeping guns out of the hands of people with felony records or not letting people carry into places like courthouses and schools and airports or even not regulating particular kinds of weapons or ammunition. And so that's just been this giant hole, if you're a guns rights person, that lots of regulations were allowed to be upheld. And the only kinds that the court had actually struck down were these basically almost total handgun personal use bans in Washington, D.C. and Chicago. Now we're in an era in which it appears with Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett joining the court that there could well be a solid conservative majority for striking down a lot more gun regulations. And this case is could very well be a step along that way. And it seemed like from oral argument that there was a majority of justices who were very skeptical of New York's law, a majority of conservative justices. And the question is just how far do they go? Do they issue a kind of incremental ruling that says like, hey, New York, you've just made it way, way too hard to carry a gun in public places. You need to ease up. There are, I think, like seven states maybe that have laws akin to New York's? Or do they go much further and say, you know, we really uh, don't know about these gun regulations anymore because there's such a broad Second Amendment right to carry a gun that lots of things are going to fall. And it seemed like some of the justices, including Kavanaugh again, were saying, oh, you don't need to get to these questions of can you, can states prevent people from carrying guns in schools courthouses, etc. We can just look at this one question. I want to add one more thing, which is that this one question is very important for cities and for New York City in particular, because one of the reasons the criminologists think that New York has had such success in having crime decline, and of course, bracket this with like, this is pre-2020, since then murders have risen in New York. But Previously, New York just had incredible success with a crime decline, and one of the main explanations was that it's really hard to get a gun permit in New York, and there just seemed to be fewer guns than in some other big cities. So if we take away that tool from the regulatory toolbox, that could have serious ramifications for public safety. Although, Emily, it was interesting that one of the amicus briefs in support of overturning the New York licensing comes from public defenders who are saying this is a law that disproportionately hurts black and brown people who are carrying guns, which they don't have licenses for because New York has made it so hard to get licenses. And it's then much easier to get put up on a gun charge in New York. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting, controversial position. It is certainly true that people who are criminally prosecuted for having guns are disproportionately black. No question. Whether that also means we should change the civil permitting rules to just, like, make it much easier for people to legally own guns in a place where the lower rate of gun ownership is so associated with public safety. I mean, that is a different kettle of fish, so to speak. But yes, they did absolutely link the two. And the link they were making is that if you make it harder to get a license, then people who are carrying guns without licenses are going to be more likely to be prosecuted. And oh, guess what? Most of those people are black. So that's what they were arguing. So can I, I have like a set of things which are just going to kind of cascade out of my mouth about this. So one, I was really interested in reading about this, that some of the conservative scholars are distinguishing, noting that the Constitution, the Second Amendment, talks about the right to keep and bear arms, the idea that you can keep an arm, you can own something, and there's also a right to bear it, to therefore carry it out, in, presumably in public. And that is an interesting note to me. I'd never thought about it, that these are two different things, and if you have a right to a gun, it doesn't it should also include the right to carry it elsewhere. I mean, I don't think it should include any of this, but whatever. That's number one. Second, first point. Second point is... Does this litigation imagine, is it asking to get rid of all licensing or is it just asking to make licensing easy? Is it saying that you don't even have to go get a license or that you can you just get a license effectively automatically? That's the second piece. The third question I have is, 
how much of this is about open carry versus concealed carry? Because a world of open carry to me is just a terrifying world. A world where you are illegally not only allowed to carry a gun, but you are allowed to carry a gun openly. It's a world without free speech anymore. It's a world where speech has effectively been constrained because of the kind of silencing effect that that a weapon has. Whereas concealed carry is problematic, but it is in, oddly like safer than open carry, in my view. So the second undue question... Oh, sorry, good John. You're going to add more questions? I'm never going to keep track of more questions. I was just going to say undue burden. Undue burden, right. Thermostatic uh, burden. <laughs> undue burden on me to have to remember all these questions. So the second question, the answer is uh, simple. Paul Clement, the conservative attorney who argued for the gun groups wants it to be much easier to get a license. They're not challenging having to get a license at all at this point. To your question about history and keep and bear arms, there is a long knockdown drag out fight over the historical meaning of all of these terms. It, some of the discussions in the brief go back to the 1300s in Britain. And what I will say the about the sheriff of Northampton or the ward of Northampton. Or yes, something. exactly. And, What I would say about this history is that if you want to find um, an argument that the history shows that everyone's been able to have a gun forevermore with zero regulations, you can cherry pick that history. I think the, the stronger historical tradition is the one that shows that there have always been limits in some places in the United States, as well as going back into Britain, and that it's pretty common sense to think that sometimes you want to limit when and how people can carry weapons. And I think that goes to your point about concealed versus open carry. Open carry does have this whole sort of signaling effect, especially in any kind of political context. I mean, bringing guns to rallies, you're right. It changes how people feel. It chill, It can completely chill speech. I mean, I have to say, I also think concealed carry can be pretty dangerous, right? Oh, sure. I mean, once you have concealed carry in a state, you have a situation in which people can argue that if they misused a gun in self-defense, they partly did so because someone else could have been carrying a gun. And we're kind of hearing that in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the shooter in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who's on trial for homicide. And that is absolutely a question here is like whether Wisconsin's gun laws gave him basically an excuse to be much quicker to pull out his gun and shoot someone. Emily, just on this, there. interestingly, there were, I think it was former Judge Ludig and other conservative jurists and scholars who are alarmed by this case for kind of federalism reasons, right? That they're, they're worried that, that the precedent of this is to take away the right of state legislatures, traditionally, which have been, you know, conservatives love state legislators, the state legislatures to regulate guns and instead put it in the hands of the Supreme Court to decide you know, each and every each and every gun regulation and that they worry is a bad precedent. Yeah. I mean, we're having a kind of potential absolute crossing of how we do gun regulation and abortion regulation in this country. So until now, state legislatures have had a lot of power to regulate weapons and much less power to restrict abortion. And we may absolutely be about to flip that dynamic so that states can restrict abortion a lot and have very little power to regulate guns. And that would be a real conservative revolution. It is definitely inconsistent with the initial conservative complaint about Roe versus Wade, which is that it took all this power away from the states. And so I think what you're seeing from Judge Ludig and other conservatives in that camp is a commitment to this principle of basically like state power um, in the federalist system that to them transcends these questions about, you know, the supremacy and the primacy, I really should say, of the individual right to bear arms. I'm a little confused by that, because what is the Supreme Court to do if not to adjudicate these questions where state law gets into conflict with the Constitution? Well, I mean, if you go back to Heller, what you see is this idea of like, okay, there is an individual right to bear arms in the Constitution, but there are limits on it. And, you know, if you look at First Amendment jurisprudence to do with religion or to do with speech and assembly, the courts have like pretty strict standards for when they let the states restrict your speech, but it's not like never. But sometimes what the Supreme Court tries to do is set a standard that means that the courts aren't going to have to get in the middle of 
every like question about whether this regulation goes too far or not, because that's not the role that they think is proper for the courts to be playing. And then other times they totally get into the middle of the whole thing. And every time, for example, it used to be like every time a city put up a crash for Christmas, there was a lawsuit over it. And it seemed like very unclear what you were allowed to do in that regard. Right. So, for example, with the undue due burden standard on abortion, would that be one of these kinds of standards that are put in place that are meant to forestall the constant pelting of the Supreme Court with additional cases in the abortion context? Yeah, exactly. And the undue burden standard comes from Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which is the 1992 case that reaffirmed Roe and but also got away from the trimester framework and Roe, which the court didn't think was working. And so then instead, it was this idea like, okay, states can regulate abortion unless they're placing an undue burden on a person's right to exercise this constitutional right. You know, undue burden has been criticized for being kind of vague, but it actually like worked pretty well for a long time um, in the sense of creating a fair amount of room, I would argue, for states to regulate, but also like basically a path to getting an abortion. There has been a clinic open in every single state. There were many fewer regulations on abortions during the first trimester that were allowed to be upheld. And so Every compromise like that is not going to be perfect, but that one seemed like it was kind of um, hanging in there for whatever. Now we're at about 30 years since Planned Parenthood versus Casey. John Dickerson, when you are sitting with your mulled wine, your seasonally appropriate, appropriate mulled wine and chattering almost empty nestedly, but not quite empty nestedly with Mrs. Dickerson, what will you be chattering about? It's going to have to be a hot toddy up here. It's so cold in in my office. My chatter is about some interesting developments at the climate conference in Glasgow. Um, The first is on the political front. 100 countries agreed to limit methane emissions. Methane is less prevalent in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide, but it's more dangerous in terms of trapping heat. So just to, for me, what was interesting is highlights how difficult these things are, where you have the president making this commitment, but back home, uh, Senator Sinema and Manchin and even some Democrats from Texas are balking at the methane curbs that are a part of the Build Back Better legislation. So it reminds us how hard it is in a democracy for a president to try and do something when the legislature wants to do something else. In this case, a legislature with such thin margins. But... We see the way in which the presidency does matter, which is simultaneously the EPA is finalizing rules to cut emissions, which is one of the things a president can do unilaterally. And these are, by the way, emissions on methane. So just at the time some liberal Democrats are unhappy with Joe Biden, these methane emission curbs at the EPA are reminding that on this crucial issue, which is crucial for a lot of liberals, who sits in the White House still matters. There's one other thing that interests me is that 450 major financial firms have signed on to the... Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which is essentially these firms, which represent about $130 trillion in assets, about 40% of the world's capital, are going to try to funnel that money into projects that help the globe reach the Paris targets. So there are lots of reasons that we should be suspicious of the, I mean, every gambit we should be suspicious about, but it's led by the former, I mean, by the current UN climate envoy and David's great person in the world is co-chairing it, um, Mike Bloomberg. So this is a interesting way in which private, the private sector is tackling and taking on the Paris targets. um, So it doesn't have to just be done by the balky government forces if it works. Emily, what is your chatter? I am really interested in this story this week out of Florida about three voting rights experts from the University of Florida who were blocked by the university from testifying against Florida in a voting rights case. Um, These are longtime experts. I've talked to them many times for the reporting I do. What's interesting about this is the inconsistency, it is now clear, with which the universities are operating. So a pediatrician, so one of the initial reasons that the University of Florida gave these three voting rights experts was you can't be paid for preparing this testimony and giving it. Well, then a pediatrician came forward and said that he had not been paid, but he had also been blocked from testifying against the state's position in some COVID litigation. And then it became clear that someone who teaches at Florida International University had been absolutely permitted to testify on behalf of the state in uh, election-related litigation. And it just seems like this is a real um, 
mushing together of the interests of the state and the university and the notion that academics who happen to work at a public university then can't take a position against the state, but they can take one in favor. I mean, come on now. Like, that is not what academic freedom is supposed to mean. And I really hope the University of Florida is embarrassed and backs down. But that doesn't seem to be so clear yet. My chatter is about a former colleague of mine at Atlas Obscura named Elliot Carter and a really interesting thing that happened to Elliot that was reported in the news this week. So Elliot is this, uh, he's a he's an amateur architectural historian, huge DC history buff, and just a really great uh, investigator of the mysteries of Washington, explorer of Washington. And he, as I said, he used to work with me at Atlas Obscura. And he has a website called WashingtonTunnels.com. And WashingtonTunnels.com is kind of what it says. It's a, it's a website about the tunnels of Washington. D.C. is uh, honeycombed with tunnels, some of them metro tunnels, some of them you know sewer tunnels. But a lot of them are tunnels around Capitol Hill, which is on a hill. And so there's a good place to tunnel underneath it. And there is a lot of subterranean transit around Capitol Hill. And Elliot has a lot of maps, all, all public materials, nothing, nothing secret, maps and descriptions of, of these tunnels. And he noticed in late December, there was this weird upsurge in traffic to his website, which he does not get a lot of traffic to because it's called WashingtonTunnels.com. And like who, how many people care about Washington Tunnels? And he noticed not only was there an upsurge in traffic, but the upsurge in traffic was coming from sites that were clearly associated with Donald Trump or sites that were associated with had like militia in their name or a one was AR 15. And he was like, this is weird. Why are these people looking at my website? And so he reported it to the FBI on January 1st, I think, and said, there are people who are checking this stuff out and are, seem to be looking at ways to get into the Capitol and told the FBI about it. And the FBI didn't do anything. And lo and behold, on January 6th, we have this invasion of, of the, the Capitol and this this assault on democracy, and Elliot appears without not by name but by reference in in a January sixth report that the the House committee is is doing or the Congressional committee is doing, and it's just an interesting little detail about somebody who noticed something weird happening, reported it, and nothing happened. And it was it's also more evidence that the January sixth planners were not simply there randomly, but that some of them had been thinking about how are we going to get into the Capitol? How are we going to invade the Capitol? And we're at least, at least planning enough to do some web research on it. So, uh, Elliot, good job maintaining that and good job reporting it. And I'm sorry that, that the country didn't act on it. Listeners, you uh, have sent great chatters to us at, at Slate Gabfest. And I would encourage you to keep sending those chatters to us at Atslake Gavest. And this one comes from J.D. Cameron, and it's one that's very close to my heart. This is Jamie Cameron from Minneapolis. My cocktail chatter is a 538 article written by John Muller, who can be found on Twitter at John Space Muller. The name of the article is Soccer Looks Different When You Can't See Who's Playing. It details the findings of a research paper called Pace and Power, removing unconscious bias from soccer broadcasts. In the research, 70% of viewers who watched a two-minute clip of a Senegal versus Poland soccer match named the African team as more athletic versus 62% of viewers naming Poland as more athletic when watching a render of the footage in which they could not see the color of the players playing. The research offers a glimpse of evidence of a type of prejudice that affects how black players of every nationality are perceived. There are other fascinating findings concerning gender and how it impacts a women's game. The piece explores how unconscious bias may affect the careers, earnings, and reputations of players based on their identities. I recommend you check it out. Ooh, that is so interesting. It's I wouldn't so have interesting. thought of that. It's so interesting. And it's such a it's such a rebuke to any people who've ever you know, in particular, the, 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 the pathology is, oh, you look at a black athlete and assume they are faster and stronger and have natural gifts rather than, you know, all great athletes have worked their ass off and, you know, they're all incredibly athletic. And to 
to ascribe athleticism, namely, or ascribe speed and strength to black people is, a, is, is one of the real things that has been just pervasive in sports commentary for forever, since I, as long as I can think of it. So this is a great experiment to, to uh, show how fallacious that is. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Gabrielle Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio, June Thomas, managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGapFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. And thanks for listening. Hello, Slate Plus, and hello especially to our new Slate Plus members. We have a whole passel of you who've joined up. Thank you for for joining us, and we look forward to having you along for these great Slate Plus segments that we get to do every week. Ross Douthat is, of course, a columnist at the New York Times uh, opinion page. He's a you know brilliant commentator on all com- all manner of things, but he contains multitudes. He contains multitudes. In fact, he contains multitudes of bacteria that are affecting <laughs> him. Don't we all, David? <laughs> that was, that was I just occurred to me as I was saying that. But as part of Ross's multitudes, he has written a new memoir, The Deep Places, The Memoir of Illness and Discovery, about five miserable years with Lyme disease, uh, misdiagnosed, insufficiently treated, experimentally treated by himself, self-medicated years and years of agony. Um it's a really moving, intense, uh, often funny book, self-aware book, and a book that exposes a corner of, of suffering that a lot of us are unaware of or choose to not look at because it seems so, uh, so horrifying to imagine that you could be mysteriously sick for years and years and years. So, Ross, first of all, congratulations on the deep places. Thank, thank you, David, and uh, and and thank you for saying that it's a fun read. In addition to being <laughs> a harrowing descent into into misery, well, I think like you know because you ha- you're you know because you're the House conservative, the New York Times. Everyone's like, oh, what a miserable fucker that guy is, and full of you know loathing and so and you're just you're such a delightful and funny and self-aware person that was like really the most backhanded compliment in well, the history of it, it, is, it is it is true that <laughs> people I have, I have sometimes but, people but that's what people say about him which isn't true it's not true people sometimes things. find it's me not more true. it's not they find me more cheerful and optimistic in person than they true. do reading my columns i think that's fair i think that's fair to say Anyway, yes. so why don't you start? I, I, you know, I'm sure you're you're sick of recounting, the, but the the quick precy of your illness. So the quick precy is that we, my wife and I, and our two girls had this wild fantasy plan to move from Washington, D.C., uh, where, as you know, David, we used to live because we saw you there once upon a time a lot, to Connecticut, to New England, where we were both from. And we bought this rambling 1790s farmhouse. And literally, as we were making the move, I became terribly sick with a disease that no doctor in Washington could figure out what it was or how to treat it. It had uh, incredibly wide range of bizarre symptoms all over my body, phantom heart attacks, insomnia, all kinds of things. And so there was sort of this initial descent. And then once we got to Connecticut, once we dragged ourselves there, I did get diagnosed with Lyme disease, a illness carried by ticks named for a couple of really cute bed and breakfast towns on the Connecticut shore where it was discovered 50 years ago. And, but then sort of fell into this crazy scientific controversy about how you actually treat Lyme disease, where a segment of people who have it, unfortunately myself included, don't get better with a short dose of antibiotics. And so you either have a choice of sort of sitting around with your misery and waiting to feel better, which is what the CDC recommends, or seeing a somewhat more outsiderish group of doctors and treating it much more aggressively and even doing a lot of weirder things than that. And that's what I did. And so the book is both a story of sort of medical mystery and medical experimentation, but also kind of a 
uh, maybe a slightly comic but Stephen King style story of you know being trapped in your rural fantasy land <laughs> with monsters in the woods and the walls closing in and and sometimes flies crawling out of them and stuff like that. So yeah, it contains multitudes much like my bloodstream and tissue. So in addition to you, I have two close friends who've had mysterious adult onset illnesses that they had to sort of wend their way through with help from a lot of specialists, but just a lot of mystery. And what has struck me in observing this is... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. (laughs) 